Blog Talk Radio. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, the wealthy, the real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, They're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. (laughs) You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe all day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. This is part of my third-party candidate series. The point of the third-party candidate series is to bring attention to alternative candidates that are available to you in the event that in the general election you've decided to exit your party and perhaps are looking for other options. It is my intention to bring on candidates from all of the major third parties, including the Libertarians, the Green Party, the Socialist Party, the Constitution Party, etc. I'm also going to be looking into bringing on some independents. My intention is to try to eventually hold a debate where uh, the 
basically the individual parties can compete for their nominations and then eventually move on to a general election series of debates where the nominees of the various in, um, parties can in turn then go and debate each other. This is a basically meant as a public service to the electorate at large. So as a result, I have to put up my disclaimer. I do not necessarily agree nor disagree, or I'm sorry, agree nor disagree with any of these people that I bring on because I'm gonna be bringing on people from a wide variety of political spectrums. And the point of that is to try to break the uh, duopoly on our democratic system that we have currently. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, you know, please feel free. You can actually make a free blog talk radio account uh, if you want to be able to participate in the chat room or follow my show that way, you can also subscribe on iTunes. And I have recently put the uh, information into it. I'll have this available also to people who use uh, the Alexa systems. Um, and my, I, you can support me on Patreon if you want. I don't really expect that that's going to happen a lot given our current pandemic scenario. Um, but you can also look back at my archives going all the way back to 2008. Um, that's actually when I started was back during the Ron Paul revolution. My personal, um, political beliefs have evolved a lot since then, but you, if you look at my archives, you'll see, uh, documentary filmmakers, scientists, presidential candidates, uh, senators, congressmen, et cetera. Um, so in general, even if you're an activist or an outside the box political thinker, you can probably find something that you would enjoy listening to in my archives. So. With all of that said, um, today my guest is Sam Robb. He is a candidate for the presidential nomination of the Libertarian Party. Welcome, Sam. Oh, sorry about that. Hello? Now, welcome, Sam. Sorry. <laughs> that was my <laughs> fault. Go ahead. Can you, that's okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. That was on my end. It wasn't on your end. Okay. So. Welcome okay. to be radio. Uh, just a second, just a second. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you uh, being willing to talk to and communicate with and exchange ideas with uh, people who don't agree with you 100%. That's something that's uh, really missing in our society right now, really missing in our political scene. And uh, I think this is an incredibly valuable contribution you're making. Well, thank you. And I hope that other people see it that way. Um, it's my intention to recognize, because the other thing that drives me crazy, particularly about debates, is that the debate moderators make me want to pull my hair out. And I don't have a lot of hair. So it, it mostly <laughs> just has to do with the fact that we need to stop having debate moderators that are in some way, you know, have some sort of agenda or corporate ownership or, you know, anything like that behind what they do, because you end up with some, you know, some people getting loaded questions and others not. I want a clear debate format where everybody is given an equal amount of time where I actively discourage candidates attacking one another, and um, we don't create a situation where one candidate is getting more time than others, and that that basically plays out a lot over the electorate. I remember in 2008, somebody did kind of a um, a video where they fast-forwarded and showed all the time that every Democratic candidate got, and Senator Gravel got less than like five minutes. Senator Kucin I'm sorry, Congressman right. Kucinich got like seven minutes, and Hillary Clinton got 30 minutes in a, you know, like in a two hour debate, which is just ridiculous, you yeah. know? So actually I'm you know, and at one point, you know, you obviously put Obama in there, but they basically control who we get to hear. That's one of the reasons I play that George Carlin quote. And I apologize for anybody who might've been offended in any way by some of the profanity, but I think George's <laughs> point there was extremely po important. So anyway, I want to go ahead and jump right in. This is a theoretically two hour broadcast. If we do not get anything, get to anything, then I will happily bring any of these candidates back on to discuss the issues. 
Uh, my format is meant to be more free-flowing, um, kind of along the vein of what you might have seen in a Joe Rogan podcast. I don't want everybody to be uh, pressured to give me plastic soundbite answers. And I also think that the, you know, the, the voters don't want any more of that crap either. So um, with that said, I want to begin, first of all, by giving the audience an opportunity to get to know you a little bit. And I do this by my question of what was your precipice moment? What made you decide to get involved in politics? Wow. Um, that actually goes back a bit. Uh, when I was a, a younger, much younger person, I won't say how old I am now, when I was uh, in my teens, I read a lot of uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, read a lot of uh, F. Paul Wilson, um, a lot of libertarian authors and writers, and uh, found myself very interested in politics. Uh, one, of the, one of the quotes I liked is that, uh, although you may not be interested in politics, politics is certainly interested in you. And uh, I kind of took that to heart and have always been interested in politics. Uh, grew up in a democratic household, you know, a nice blue-collar neighborhood. Uh, of course, when you when you're brought up as a as a Democrat, when you rebel, you uh, go over to the Republican side of the house, and uh, that's exactly what I did when I got to college. I found I was in uh, uh, Navy ROTC, uh, and I found out that there were certain people that uh, really hated you for for being in the military, and other people that liked you for being in the military. So I kind of hung out with the guys that liked you for being in the military and uh, found myself as a Republican at that point. Um, kind of carry on throughout the years, and, and uh, I describe myself to a lot of people as a Republican with, with uh, libertarian leanings. And uh, by the time I hit around 2011, 2012, I realized, uh, much like Reagan said of the, of the uh, Democrats, that the Republican Party, I hadn't left the Republican Party, the Republican Party had left me. Um, they had simply failed to live up to anything that I, I thought that they uh, actually espoused. And uh, I stayed stuck around, stuck with the party long enough to vote against Mitt Romney in the primaries and then changed my registration to Libertarian. And I figured uh, either the Republicans could get their act together and uh, actually start doing what they always said they were going to do in terms of limited government and reducing spending and personal freedoms, or uh, I would stick with the, the Libertarians and see what could happen there. You come forward a couple of years and uh, things things start getting bad. Honestly, you look at the look at the country, look at the direction we're heading in, and uh, I said, you know what? If I was willing to make take that step before, I should be willing to take another step. So I, I decided the uh, the best way and probably the most complete and comprehensive way to throw myself into politics would be to run for president. Plus, I was I will admit I was left unsupervised. And uh, actually, registering to run for president is one of the easiest things you can do as far as the government's concerned, which is somewhat strange to me. But uh, it was a lot easier than filling out my daughter's FAFSA forms, which was my alternative one evening. So here I am. <laughs> so um, now the first topic that I tend to launch into, and I think it's kind of ironic because this is actually what got me into politics, was a link to a video of Ron Paul educating Rudy Giuliani on issues of foreign policy and why we were attacked on 9-11, which is not the core of my question, but I'm just saying that's what got me involved. So now I'm going to turn it over gotcha. to you, though. Um, as a candidate for president, uh, what are your views on foreign policy? And the especially I would kind of highlight the regime change war policy that we seem to have in the United States. 
Yeah, that's something that uh, grew out of and seemed to grow up out of uh, uh, post-World War II, the idea that, that we need to not just be good neighbors, but that we need to be, nebby, to use a Pittsburgh term, nebby neighbors. We need to have our nose stuck in everybody else's business. Um, and you can see some of the, the where's and the why's of that when you, when you, you look at the, the rise of the Soviet Union and the threat, the threat of totalitarian, totalitarian communism. Um, you can kind of see how that happened, but that doesn't mean that's a good thing that happened. Uh, our foreign policy, in my viewpoint, uh, should be a lot like <laughs> we should be good neighbors, right? Good neighbors are there when you run into a problem. Uh, if you take a look right now, we've got, you know, look around, we've got this uh, COVID-19 issue. Uh, we've got a bunch of people self-quarantining. My wife and I actually were out this afternoon, uh, not, not to brag, just saying that we were helping out some people. We were running some errands for some people that couldn't get out and, uh, you know, hit the, hit the grocery store, picked them up some uh, toilet paper. Everybody's, I don't know why, but everybody's crazy about the toilet paper. Um, but made sure that we got some to them, uh, along with some other some other materials that they needed. That's what good neighbors do. When there's a problem and you're asked, you step in and you help. Um, you don't go around trying to peer in people's windows and decide, okay, I need I need to come in here and look. You know what? I think I'm gonna I'm gonna just kick down the door and come in and tell you tell you two that I think you two need some marriage counseling right now. So I'm gonna sit here uninvited and and just force you to go through this. That seems to be the the kind of foreign policy that that we've had over the last oh geez over my entire lifetime and, and even before that. Um, this intervention this idea that we're interventionists at the, at the national level. Um, that, that as a country that we're going to go out and we're going to uh, try and uh, try and pick winners and losers in other countries' political scenes. And uh, we can see that that over and over and over and over again, that that's just a horrible failure. The places where we have had success in our foreign relationships have been places where we have acted as good neighbors. When somebody's come to us and said, hey, we need some help, we provide some help until things are re- resolved, and then we're done. When we, uh, when we have good relationships, for example, uh, with, with our, our neighbors to the north, with Canada, with, uh, with uh, England, with the United Kingdom, uh, when we, we basically just say, hey, yeah, you know what, we are equal partners here in this world, and uh, we're here to help you if you need it, and we'd like some help in return sometimes, but we're, we're going to let everybody live and let live. That's, that seems to be what, what works overall, and that's what we need to get to as a foreign policy. Just get our noses out of people's business, get our, our armies out of people's business, pull, you know, basically pull back and, and say, you know what, we're here. This is our house that we're taking care of. You've got your, your own issues. If you need some help, give us a call. Now, I want to kind of give you some elaborations on this question, uh, just as I had given Spike the other night, was that um, there are a few key things that tend to come up that, you know, essentially tempt uh, administrations to get into more adventurism overseas. You know, but one of them would be right. uh, you take the September 11th terrorist attacks. If you were the president mm-hmm. at that time, how would you have handled our foreign policy in response to being attacked in in such a way? The, the response to it- as far as I'm concerned, in that instance, is to identify who was involved, to find to find them, 
uh, to bring bring them to the United States if need be and put them on trial. I mean, you've got, you've got a it's a it's a horrendous act. It was it was an act of aggression, but to prosecute an entire country or entire nations because of that is ridiculous. Unless unless you can prove you know, that it was an act of war, that it was another nation uh, intending to to harm the United States and harm the people of the United States, uh, which in this case it wasn't. It was a, it was a terrorist act. It was a, a small group of people. Um, you treat them as a, exactly the way that you would treat any other criminal enterprise. You go after them, you you find them, you capture them, and then you put them on trial. And you show, hey, these are the guys that were responsible for this. This is this is uh, this is what happened. Here's the evidence. You let a court decide, and then you sentence them and, and let them carry out their sentence. So basically, more of a let's go after the individuals responsible as opposed to an invading entire country method. Yeah, I think that overall probably works out a little bit better. Right? <laughs> yeah, I would say that <laughs> probably does too. You know, and, here's, um, and here's the thing: if uh, if there's some someone from the United States. Let's say let's say you get some some band of uh, you know out of uh, New Hampshire or whatever that decides they're going to they're going to roll up and they're going to invade some town in Canada and trash it and hoot and holler and and uh, then they're they're going to you know just come back and carry on with their lives. I don't want Canada coming and bombing Pittsburgh because of somebody right. who's from up in New Hampshire. Nothing nothing against you guys in New Hampshire, by the way. But uh, just the first, <laughs> first state that came to mind. But um, that's essentially what we've done, really. And we should be, we should be treating this as, yeah, like I said, just any other, like any other criminal enterprise. You, you've, you've harmed a lot of people. You did something, something absolutely horrible, and we're going to come after you and, and say, hey, we're, we think you're responsible. We'll take you to court. We'll see if we can prove that you're responsible and take care of it. Okay, I think that was a good, solid response. Um, another one of the ones that was brought up was the circumstances in Syria. If you were the president, how would you handle that? Could you elaborate on that in particular? Just as in Assad and, you know, we have this circumstance where there's all of this information being exchanged. It's not clear as to what the oh, okay, actual gotcha. thing is going on. Is this guy bombing his own people or are, you know, or is people terrorists? Right. You know, there's all these question marks. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, again, like I, like I said earlier, keep your nose out of other people's business, uh, which really, you know, in a lot of cases kind of stinks because there are times when I think, you know, my neighbor, uh, I don't, you know, I hear him yelling and uh, I worry about, you know, I may worry about the family, worry about the kids. But unless I've got some solid evidence or some solid reason to in, involve myself at a particular point in time, I need to keep my nose out of it. Um, same sort of situation here, right? There's a question about what's going on. And no matter who you talk to, you're always going to get a spin. You're going to get, you know, hey, you know, he said, she said, he's bombing his own people. Well, they're really terrorists. They're, they're revolutionaries trying to, trying to uh, free themselves from his regime. Whatever. That's your business. That's your country. You deal with it. If you want help from us, then come to come to the United States. Let's go. Let's go through some. Uh, you know, you want to go. You want some help? Let's go through some diplomatic channels. Let's let's examine the situation and carefully weigh whether we want to be involved or not. If it's a humanitarian issue, 
you know, maybe we do. If we're, ta- if we're talking about uh, a, a potential case where we find out that uh, someone is, is systematically uh, killing certain segments of the population, and that, I mean, that goes all the way back to talking about World War II in Germany. That, ta- that talks about uh, various other types of genocides that have happened. When, when you see that and when you see that sort of evidence, I think that's a, that's a case where you step up and you say, hey, this is, this is what responsible neighbors would do, would be to step in and keep someone from killing their family. Uh, in the international scene, that would be a very similar sort of situation. Hey, there, this is a bad scene. There's something going on here. Our goal is to stop it and then withdraw. We've got a very specific goal. We've got a very specific aim, but we need to make sure that we, we know exactly what's going on, that we have some good information, and that we don't just go jumping off the gun and, and believe in the first person that comes to us with a sob story or with a, with a, a story about how horrible one side or the other is in their country. Okay. That seems I, – I, I grasp what you're going with there. Um, now, the – that I think brings us, unless you had anything else you wanted to say about foreign policy, I was going to move on. Did you have anything else? Yeah. The only, uh, the only other thing I would say for foreign policy is uh, something that is actually pretty, uh, pretty big in the libertarian circles is the idea of ending foreign aid, which is something that I'm 100% for. Um, but I also believe that we should, we should allow uh, individuals within the country, individual Americans to support other nations as they as they choose. I know I've I've got a uh, bunch of friends who very very much are interested in uh, uh, in supporting Israel. Fantastic. I don't think the United States as a country should be, but I also think that uh, there should be no prohibitions against them if they want to support a nation or support a group within an organization within another nation. There should not be any. Uh, any laws or any force being used in the United States to keep them from doing that. That would go for, you know, hey, if you've got, if you've got some Syrian nationals here in, uh, that have, have immigrated to the United States and they, have a, they want to support one side or the other in the Syrian conflict, fantastic. You can do that, but that's on you. That's not the United States doing it. Okay. So you mentioned a little bit about your own personal experiences with COVID-19, just, uh, you know, anecdotally and referencing being a good neighbor, but now we're going to put you in a different scenario. Let's assume that right now, um, well, actually, because I'm going to frame this the same way I did for Spike, let's assume I'll give you two months, like back in time. What does President Sam Robb do about the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic? Okay, if I was president two months ago, this is interesting because that means I would have been president uh, four years ago. And one of the things that I would have, would have pushed for and one of the things that I would have uh, made a, a priority in my administration would be to go to the Federal uh, Drug Administration, the FDA, and get them to rework, rewrite, loosen up regulations – uh, one of the issues that we have with healthcare in general is an issue with doctors and, and, uh, and medical professionals not being able to, uh, to work across state lines, um, differences in licensing, and so on. Uh, we've got issues with uh, drug approvals. We've got issues with medical device approvals. And a lot of those are in place. Uh, you don't want, to, don't want to say for good reasons, but they start with good intent. If, you, if you've ever heard somebody talk about uh, flying an airplane or learning to be a pilot, uh, they mentioned that every 
instrument in the cockpit is there because somebody died. And I think we're in a similar situation with, with, uh, uh, with some things in, in terms of the FDA, in terms of medical regulation. But the problem is that instead of just having that, that one rule or that one guidance that helps us to, to avoid a death in the future, they pile on regulation after regulation after regulation. Because as soon as you start regulating something, if it goes wrong, it's your fault. Right? So there's a desire to just over-regulate in order to avoid any semblance of, of, uh, of responsibility, which leads to things like, oh, yeah, we could have a vaccine for COVID-19 in four to five years once we get through all the trials, um, which really doesn't help when people are dying right now. My sure. administration would have pushed for uh, getting rid of all these regulations, moving to a much more freely – Open, free, open, market-driven uh, environment where, uh, right, where where regulations are replaced by uh, private approval. If you if you've ever used anything electronic, you've probably seen uh, you know, the little underwriter lab stamp on it. That's a private institution that says, "Hey, we we've we do such a good job at at verifying that that electronic equipment works." that people will not sell electronics without having the UW seal of approval because otherwise nobody will buy it. You can do the exact same thing with medicine. You can do the exact same thing with medical technologies. And uh, we would have pushed for that, which means that two months ago, instead of having to say, oh, everything's okay and we're going to start this approval process, you already would have had companies saying, you know what? There's something happening in China. It looks like it may be coming to the United States. We need to start some programs. We need to see how things are going to go here. We need to start working on vaccines. We need to start working on therapies. We need to start working on treatments here. Let's go ahead. We can come up with, uh, with better ventilators, better, better respirators, because that looks like something that's going to be needed. Uh, you would have hospitals who would be able to allocate resources more efficiently because they would have cut out a lot of the, require, a lot of the requirements that they, that they have to make sure that someone's licensed, that someone's, someone is uh, approved by the state before they can give care. Uh, you would have a, a situation where the CDC, instead of, uh, instead of directing people, would be sharing information with all the – and this is actually very close to the situation we have right now, where the CDC is just sharing information, giving recommendations, and it's up to individual local health uh, state and local health organizations to decide how they're going to implement that. But uh, being able to co effectively coordinate and, and work all this together to say, hey, yes, we've, we've got an issue here. We've got a threat, but we already have people working on it. We already have recommendations from the CDC. Here's what we need to do. Let's, let's work on make choices based not on what's good for the, what's good for the economy or what's good for what's good for individual segments of the economy, but what's good for, for Americans as a whole. Instead of shutting down, shutting down businesses, hey, let's see about limiting, the, talking to them and saying, this is the situation. If you're going to stay open, we need to limit the number of people that can be in your business at one time. You want to stay open? We, you want your customers to stay healthy? You want to have goodwill? That we all come together and make that happen. Yeah, that actually kind of brings me to accelerating the, the question a little further. And as I pointed out to Spike, this is a difficult question for libertarians to answer it, it and is in that to field it in such a way that, you know, respects individual and civil rights. You know, let's say that we move things mm -hmm. a little more further. And now we're at this stage where 
we're kind of, we, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you, and we could even, because like when I, when I gave you two months, it was mostly just to say, okay, so you respond to it. There's this warning. What do you do? But now let's assume that you have assumed right. command in today's situation, like right now, where we essentially are being told mm-hmm. we may have to lock down our entire, you know, towns, uh, you know, our, our towns, our cities and everything. Uh, and there's going to be right. a whole lot of people who can't work, even if they want to, you know, um, and I mean, yeah. if you don't do something, this, this situation is just going to go on longer. Uh, so that's the circumstances for today. What do you tell the voters who are listening that if I were president right now and you, you know, the issue of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is coming up, what do you do as president Sam Robb? Like I said, the, uh, a lot of the responses are being handled at the, the state and local level. The federal government in the form of the CDC is communicating and, and providing information. One thing that we would have, un, I believe, under a libertarian administration, without the, the road, artificial roadblocks that have been instituted, would have been more extensive testing that would allow us the information to understand where we are in terms of this, in, in terms of this pandemic, in terms of this emergency. Um, right now, we really are kind of flying blind. We've got some stats from, from China, which are questionable at best. We've got some information from Italy, which is an entirely different social and economic situation. Um, and uh, depending on who you, you talk to, we've already seen a, a massive spread of, of COVID-19 in the, in the United States, and we didn't really pay attention to it, or uh, it's something that is still coming and it's still down the road. Um, I, I seem to... Uh, I personally tend to believe that we're somewhere in the middle of that. Things are going to get bad, but they're not going to get, uh, get end of the world apocalyptic like some people seem to think. Um, there, are different, there are different methods that different countries have, uh, different approaches that different countries have taken. Um, I think that the, the, the whole idea of lockdown um, possibly makes sense, but primarily in terms of protecting those who are most vulnerable. Um, the elderly, those with uh, various uh, comorbidities that may lead to uh, negative outcome if they were to, to contract COVID-19, uh, and primarily for them, giving them space so that they can uh, be isolated until we can develop uh, the appropriate therapies, until we can develop the vaccines or appropriate treatments. Um, in, the, in those cases, what you're doing is saying, I'm going to protect the people who are in active danger. Um, we don't, the information that we do have seems to indicate that uh, if you're under 50, if you're otherwise in good health, that COVID-19 is uh, probably going to be a minor issue for you. In that case, okay, if you're not somebody that needs to sequester yourself for your own good, then let's go. Let's go ahead and continue to keep the keep the economy moving, keep the country rolling. Because what we really need in this time is for us to work together to come up with the solutions that we need to take care of the people that that need our care right now. Um, we don't do that by everybody everybody turning out the lights and hunkering down and and shivering in the dark, waiting for whatever it is to happen. We do that by making some some good choices about who we're going to protect 
asking them as opposed to ordering them, telling them, hey, you are in, you're in the risk situation. Here's how you can take care of yourself. Here's how we can, we can work with you to take care of yourself. Just give us some time. We'll, we'll figure this out. But in the meantime, let's, take, let's, let's keep you safe and let the rest of the world, go, the rest of the country go on with doing what needs to be done in order to keep our, our basically keep our, uh, our country moving so that we can support those who are doing the work to take care of the people who need it. Okay, so essentially you're just basically looking at, you know, just to be make sure I'm clear on what you're saying, is you want to you know, make sure people are aware of the danger, um, make sure the people who are in most danger uh, by your assessment essentially have whatever resources they need, um, and then to do your best to try to basically avoid any just state circumstances of just telling people what to do. Um, and is that essentially your, your point? I just want to be clear. Okay. Um, that so, is exactly my point, yeah. Um, and I think so, what we've seen is that, that and I think what we've seen uh, pr- much prior to uh, go- state governments and uh, and the federal government getting involved and, and suggesting these shutdowns, we saw churches voluntarily saying, you know what, we're going, we've got older members, we're going to stop our services and go to an online format. We saw Disney saying, hey, you know what, we're going to shut down the park because we don't want to be involved with spreading this. We saw a sports organizations say, you know what, no, this is it. We're, we're just gonna, this means a lot to us in terms of, in terms of uh, income, but uh, our reputation means even more. We're going to go ahead and halt the season because we do not want to be part of the, the reason that somebody, someone might get sick and die. All of that was done voluntarily. All of that was, was done by organizations saying, you know what, it's in our best interest to be a good neighbor. It's our, in our best interest to look out for people and to voluntarily halt uh, these assemblies that we, that we are doing. And uh, then you've got the, the government rolling in and saying, you know what, yeah, 11 people in your, in your uh, restaurant is dangerous, but 10 people is okay. And that's, that's just ridiculous. You know, but what about things like the uh, the spring breakers in Florida? I mean, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Just like an enormous amount of kids oh, yeah, just going on absolutely. with spring break as if nothing was wrong. Do you, do you, is that another that scenario actually, where you just feel you should educate them, or? I well, one, I feel it's it's part of its education. Two, um, honestly, I think the the responsible thing or the the reasonable thing for uh, colleges to do in this situation. Uh, might have been to cancel spring break, not to send students home, uh, not to cancel school, not to say, oh, yeah, we're going to – because what, what you ended up with was, uh, you know, several hundred, hundreds of thousands, millions of students uh, in a situation where you're saying, hey, we, we want to restrict travel in order to minimize spread. Oh, by the way, we're going to send you, start sending you guys all around the country back and forth, right? Um, it, seems, it seems ridiculous to me to do that. Uh, what probably would have been better would be, hey, you know what, guys, colleges, it probably would be best for your students to stay where they are, to be in the environments where they are, and uh, where they, you know, let's, let's increase some monitoring, let's provide some guidance for you, but let's not mix these students who are from all over, you know, all over the country and, and, uh, and uh, disperse them from what might be a point of contagion or, or d- through points of, points of contagion in order to get back to their families. Let's, let's just keep calm, keep things where they are, keep people where they are as much as we can, 
avoid mixing mixing up uh, the population and and uh, and just move forward with it. Move forward with this and and understand that this is a, this is a small sacrifice that we're making in order to help others. Okay. Um, I feel unless you did you have anything else you wanted to say on COVID nineteen? No, nope. no, I'm good. Okay. Then we will move on to healthcare. Uh, healthcare is essentially a big hot button issue right now. And I think that COVID-19 actually kind of, uh, exasperated the question as far as people are concerned about how yeah. to approach healthcare. So, uh, obviously people right now, especially are more you know, afraid of what could happen in, in either direction, whether it be, you know, do we end up like Italy or do we end up like South Korea or, you know, uh, but as far as like, but segueing into healthcare, even outside of this epidemic, that's kind of the important point. This is a mm-hmm. general healthcare question, even outside of pandemics. So how right. do how, what are your feelings on the, I guess, especially since this is what people are going to ask. And I know this is not normally a libertarian way of looking at it anyway, but what is the government's role in ensuring that everybody, regardless of their economic situation has access to healthcare? Which is, that's interesting because I would argue that, that that actually is is kind of a libertarian question, right? Um, because there are things that the government can do, or I guess more importantly, there are things that the government can avoid doing in order to make sure that people have access to health care. Um, uh, you go back to, to 1940, 1950, and you realize that, that people actually did have generally good access to health care. They, they were able to go to the doctor. They were able to go to the emergency room, and they were able to uh, get taken care of for just about whatever it is that came down, came down the pipe uh, in terms of normal life, um, which is where things get interesting uh, because right now we have this one-size-fits-all idea of what health care is, and uh, the truth is, when you when you start talking about one size fits all for a country our size, uh, or even for a, some a place the size of a, a, one of our states, what you really end up with is one size fits none. Um, the healthcare system that we have basically fails to distinguish between uh, routine preventative care. Uh, you know, talking, talking about checkups, talking about well, wellness visits, talking, talking about uh, basic screening and exams for, for, for a lot of conditions, uh, fails to distinguish between that, between routine, routine care. Uh, you know, I'm, go, I'm actually I'm going in for, a, uh, a, for minor surgery tomorrow. I'm going to have a, a kidney stone removed. That's something that's not life. It's not immediately life-threatening. It's not. It's not uh, you know crash cart in the emergency room sort of serious. But it's something that needs to be taken care of, and it's something that happens sometimes during your life, um, and you want to be prepared for that. You also have catastrophic care issues. If I were to go into the emergency room or go into the uh, the ER tomorrow, and they remove the uh, the kidney stone and afterwards the doctor says, and Mr. Rob, we saw, uh, we saw something troubling while we were in there on the scope, right? All of a sudden now you've got a catastrophic care situation. It's not something that you expect to happen in your life, but oh my goodness, well, you know, what, what is it now? I'm, I'm going to have to worry about operations. I'm going to have to worry maybe about chemo. You, your mind goes through all these things. Each one of those levels of care 
has different requirements. And if you think about it in terms of, uh, you know, a, a great analogy is, is thinking about it in terms of your car. Okay. So, Neil, do you drive? Yes. Okay. Um, I presume you have insurance. Okay. How, do you go through your insurance company to put gas in your car? No. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't go through no. the insurance company to – uh, to put gas in your car, to put oil in your car, to change, change the wiper fluid, right? Those are all preventative maintenance or, or daily maintenance sort of things. Uh, you probably don't through the insurance company uh, if you're going to, if you have some issues with your car. If, for example, if you need your, your rotors turned or if you need uh, a new carburetor put in, that's something that might be covered under warranty, uh, something that you've paid for previously. In case you know, in case this happens, say it's a small cost, but uh, later on, though, you know, I may I may have need of it. And uh, you, but you carry insurance for the catastrophic issues. For okay, I you know I was uh, dri- driving along and somebody came came through a uh, blew through a stop sign and t-boned me, and now my engine is sitting four feet to the left of my car. Right, that's a catastrophic <laughs> right. issue. That's what you carry insurance for. For, you know, speaking in terms of healthcare, we use that insurance for everything. You go to you go to uh, go to the doctor and you say, "Hey, I want to get a flu shot." Insurance gets involved. Hey, I, you go to the doctor. I want to I want to just have a checkup and make sure that I'm I'm you know I'm in good health. My blood pressure is okay. I don't have anything to worry about right now. Insurance gets involved. You go to the doctor and say, "You know what? My my foot's been hurting me." Right, and I'm not sure what happened. Maybe I maybe I twisted my ankle. Maybe I've got some uh, plantar fasciitis going on. Maybe I maybe I've got some uh, cellulitis yeah, here in my foot. But I'm not sure. You get insurance involved. Each of those levels of care is bringing in these massive conglomerations, these massive corporations that have no no idea, no no desire to deal with with any of this except to minimize how much money they pay out. When the, the, the honest truth is, if we separated out insurance so that you could have preventative care separate from uh, the, these routine, routine care operations sort of things like getting your, getting your foot checked out versus the emergency stuff like, uh, you know, hey, there's a, there's a spot on your lung, we would be much better off because we would be able to properly categorize and properly deal with each one of these things. And it, the honest truth is when you have a, when you open up the market, when you open up, uh, for example, if you allow doctors to say, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sell, uh, you know, a, a preventative care plan for you. Here's, here's, uh, you know, you've got a family of five. We'll give you a dozen visits this year. You can prepay, get a discount. And you do that now. And the government comes after you because they, they claim that you are setting yourself up as an insurance company. Right. If the government sure. was not involved, then you would have people who would be able to prepay for expected treatments. Doctors would be able to say, "Hey, I've, I'm, you know, I've got, uh, I've got 500 people on this plan. I am funded for this year. I, you know, I can afford to start. You know, I can afford to take on some some new patients that maybe aren't uh, aren't able to pay. But uh, you know, I don't have to worry about that because my costs. I know my costs are covered now." 
and I, I don't have the government coming after me because I'm, I'm providing uh, free health care. That means that I am a, I'm uh, sending myself as, as a, a nonprofit charitable organization and without the paperwork. And if you just let people take care of people and people take care of their, their own issues instead of having to deal with a corporation to make it happen, then healthcare will do a lot better in this country. So, okay, I think I have a solid idea then of, of what you mean. Um, now, I, I guess we, we get to, you know, especially when it comes to with situations like healthcare. Now, are, is there ever a time when government might get involved in the situation? I mean, like, so for example, um, we currently have a circumstance in which private corporations are purchasing patents to, uh, to inelastic demand items like the EpiPen or uh, you know, right now, like there's right. evidence actually that some of the companies that produce drugs that might have been able to help with COVID-19 and they just like tripled the price because they can. Right. Um, you, do you think yeah. that that's something the government should be involved in at all? <laughs> That's that's interesting. It kind of gets into the idea of intellectual property, um, which is which is interesting because that's a government grant, right? That is specifically uh, in, in the Constitution was the idea that that uh, the government is allowed to to provide these patents to secure for a limited time uh, the the you know people to have the rights to produce these these items uh, in order to you know say hey you have an incentive to come up with this. The government's willing to say, yeah, you can, you came up with this first. We'll protect you uh, and keep other people from copying you for a limited period of time so that you can actually profit from it instead of locking it up as some sort of trade secret. Uh, that was the whole idea there. There's, uh, there's been some obvious problems. Uh, when, you, when you start talking about things like, like the EpiPen patents or uh, you know, drug patents for, for drugs that might possibly help with COVID-19, Again, that's the government. The, the federal government can say, you know what, this is fantastic. This is why we gave you this patent was to secure, thing, secure your ability to uh, make a profit for a limited time. And uh, it's up, up to us to determine what the limited time is. And uh, without the patent, you don't have any way to make money. So do we pull the patent now? That gets the government out of it. That puts, you, that puts us back into a situation where anybody now can say, oh, hey, I've got the formula for this compound, or I know how to make an EpiPen. I know, you know there's, here's the patent. It tells you exactly how. And the government has said, no, you know what? They, you didn't play by the rules. You, were, you, uh, uh, you, you went against what, what the patent was intended for. So we're, going, we're just going to say, no, we're, we're going to pull it. And that's getting the government out of that business again. Now, Okay, so I, I guess I, I see where you're going with that. Um, as far as how that applies to other <laughs> like issues in healthcare. No, I, I, <laughs> I'm glad you see where, I, where I'm coming from, where I'm going with these. But uh, yeah, I guess you can, you can say in, in some instances, and I actually have a, a, a friend, uh, a fellow that I've talked to. Um, I've got a, a good friend here in Pittsburgh who does, uh, uh, works for a company that does uh, healthcare policy work, uh, statistics, and, and so on. Um, I've talked to some other friends that uh, they're involved in the healthcare industry, and there are points where things get dicey, where you, where you, hit, you hit some extremes when you're talking, talking about healthcare. Uh, and one of the classic examples is uh, when you're talking about end-of-life treatments. Um, 
for example, the, the example here is, uh, you know, how much are you willing to give to make it, to extend your life two more weeks so that you can see your daughters get married? There, that's, you put it in that sense, you put it in those terms, and you realize that there are people who are willing to, to give everything for that little bit of extra life. Um, so when you start getting into talking about end-of-life care, here's the, the opportunity for people to, uh, I mean, in, in one sense, it's like, yes, it's a, it's a market, but in another, another sense, you're talking about life and death situations. Um, so it does get kind of, it does get kind of. I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not going to say it's a situation where the where the government absolutely should be stepping in, but it's a situation where uh, you want to make sure that there is absolutely no instance of uh, fraud or abuse going on, uh, because the the idea of of having someone that's desperate for something uh, something that you have is really one of those situations where you kind of want a little bit of oversight. Um, the other instance where, uh, where I think it does help is the idea of providing a government providing a backstop. And in this point, in, in this term, I'm, I'm using government um, loosely because it, 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 that's a function that can be fulfilled by mutual aid societies. Uh, that's a function that eventually could be fulfilled by charities. But the, the idea that there are, you know, aside from carrying catastrophic insurance yourself, there are some instances where uh, things just get so bad that even, even those sorts of policies are going to run out. Um, if, you care, if you say, hey, you know what, I'm going to be really proactive and I'm going to make sure that I carry uh, $2 million of catastrophic care insurance and you run into some sort of, some sort of uh, edge case medical condition, you can blow through that really quickly. Um, so the idea that, uh, uh, that we, need, we do need to have some sort of backstop, some sort of, of resource that uh, those who are truly in need can go to uh, whether that is uh, a private institution, whether that that is a mutual aid society, whether that's a, a government program, and I'll I'll point out here to my libertarian listening friends, just because it's government does not mean we need to fund it through taxes, does not mean we need to fund it through uh, confiscating confiscating wealth from people. Uh, the federal government has more than enough resources. Uh, I believe uh, I was my my fellow uh, candidate Ken uh, Armstrong today who mentioned that they. The, the government owns something like $200 trillion worth of property across the world with various, uh, various bases and various, various uh, lands that they, that they have title to. Um, there's no reason why this has to be funded uh, through income tax or through taking money from, from citizens, but uh, you know, it would be nice to know that if things really go out the window, that yes, there there are some organizations that I can rely on that will will be there to help me. Okay, I, I did want to clarify just so everybody understands because I, I put up my disclaimer in the beginning was just to say that I am acknowledging that I understand where you're coming from does not necessarily mean an endorsement one way or the other of what it is that you said. <laughs> <laughs> Only because, and I'm not saying that I didn't necessarily disagree either. It's just my my role here is to try to be as impartial and impersonal as possible. So um, that that's going to bring us on to. Uh, 
education more specifically in reference to the student loan issue, the massive amounts of student debt the college kids are in, uh, you know, and what, if any, role the government has in ensuring that everybody, regardless of their financial situation, going into that stage of their life still has access to a good education. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that we need to start off with, with acknowledging is that uh, a lot of the current uh, situation, particularly when you talk about uh, college debt, is, excuse me, is something that was created by the government. Federal guaranteed student loans, uh, basically, that can't be dis- discharged through uh, bankruptcy, was uh, the mechanism by, by which the government said, hey, we're going to, we're going to make sure that everybody has uh, – Five thousand dollars a year to go to go to college, and they're never going to. You know, they're always going going to be guaranteed to repay that. Uh, even even if the, everything else goes wrong in their life and they can file for bankruptcy, that loan's going to follow them. So you're guaranteed to get your money back no matter what. That meant that there was no reason why anybody would not loan them that money because they know absolutely they're going to be able to get it back. They're going to be able to garnish wages and go after them for, for everything they own if need be. Um, but it also had the effect that every college in the country, if they were thinking rationally, and you've got to assume people think rationally, said, oh, every student that's coming here has an extra $5,000 a year over and above what they were already affording to pay. We would be idiots if we didn't raise our rates, $5,000, and then we have all this extra money that we can use for attracting new students, building better stadiums, pumping up the sports, the sports program, uh, making sure that we have you know, the, the uh, very best you know, in terms of an, an arts program or whatever. It really it, it did nothing to make college more affordable. It did everything to make college more expensive. Um, and I think the I think the the answer there should have been, hey, if you want college to be affordable, keep the government out of it. Uh, it used to be back in the 70s that if you worked a part-time job, you could go to college. You can barely do that now if you go to go to a community college, barely. Um, and in a couple of years, that's probably not going to be true. So what we need to do is is get the government out of the education business. And I, I would argue that that's from kindergarten all the way up through college. But specifically, as far as college goes, we need to acknowledge that these, uh, that there were a lot of bad loans made. Um, in some cases, that they were made fraudulently. Uh, if you've got somebody saying, oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll gladly give you a $30,000 loan to go to school for basket weaving, right? Obviously, they're, right. They're, anybody in their right mind wouldn't imagine that that would ever that you would ever make enough money to pay that back. Um, so in some cases, it's fraudulent. Um, in a lot of cases, really, if you look at the average debt uh, held by, in terms of student loans, I believe it's somewhere around – it's a middle-class problem, and it's large, often around $30,000. Um, if, if we can solve that, for, for mo- solve that debt problem for most people – and uh, in five to ten years, simply by getting rid of personal income tax, 
getting rid of uh, employment taxes, getting, getting rid of Social Security taxes, and allowing people to keep their money. At that point, you, you roughly, your average middle class uh, wage earner will get probably, uh, if I remember correctly, between six and $8,000 a year extra in, in money that was taken from them by the government to be redistributed to other people. Um, and they will have that. And now, okay, you've got $30,000 in debt. You're getting $6,000 a year uh, because you're no longer having all these taxes taken out of, uh, taken out of your pay. And in five years, your debt's gone. Uh, that depends on people actually being doing the responsible thing, but it is it is a way for us to get back to a situation where people are taking care of their own finances, their own debts, and uh, and and managing their own lives. And meanwhile, we get the government out of it so that we don't have we don't basically keep recreating this situation every year. Um. So. Uh, there was one other uh, aspect, I guess, that I, I forgot to put in the previous list that I talked about, but I know I talked to Spike about this, so I want to make sure I give you an opportunity. And this question kind of goes to, uh, especially perhaps voters who don't understand how libertarians approach things, but there are an awful lot of people right now that, I mean, that outside of the pandemic, I might add, the pandemic adds a completely different factor to all of these <laughs> questions. But in this specific yeah. issue, it has to do with especially the poorest class who are having a hard time making ends meet, you know, how are they going to be able to move forward, you know, um, in our economy? And so that's like kind of a generic economic approach, you know, as president, you know, what do you do to try to ensure mm -hmm. prosperity for, you know, as many citizens as possible? Obviously it's impossible to get everybody to be prosperous, but you know, the question would be, what right. do you feel as the president, your role is in trying to ensure that the poor can try to work towards not being poor, that the middle class maybe even can scale up to the next level and so on. Yeah. And th I mean, honestly, that's really what you, what you want. You want to give people the opportunity to move up and to improve their lot in life. Um, you do that in a lot of cases, but again, they sound uh, maybe for a lot of your listeners, you're saying, oh, man, Sam sounds like a broken record now. These libertarians are a broken record. Get the government out of, the biz out of business. Um, one of the things that, speaking, speaking uh, uh, the last couple of months, uh, pre-pandemic -pre here in, in uh, western Pennsylvania, um, our minimum wage is, uh, I believe, $7.25 or $7.50. Um, it's kind of hard for me to remember what it is because there is not a – company uh, in the area that I've seen that pays minimum wage. Uh, you, if you go and you apply to uh, Sheets, which is our local uh, kind of Pennsylvania convenience store chain, um, at least here locally, uh, which is not you know, a very, I'm not talking about a very affluent area, they're still starting people at 10, 10, 50, $11 an hour uh, because they want to attract people. They're having trouble attracting people. Um, the chances for, I've talked to, to folks who work in, uh, work in fast food around here. Um, I had one, one lady that uh, uh, I know who ended up actually going off into the, joining the Marine Corps. Uh, she works on uh, fighter jets now, but uh, for a time she worked in uh, uh, a local McDonald's and they loved her. 
I mean, she went for, she went from being uh, being a uh, frontline frontline employee running the register to being a store manager in six months because she basically she showed up on time and she did did her job and she looked for for anything she needed to do, anything else she can do to help. Um, businesses want people like that. They want to see people like that succeed because when those people succeed, then their business succeeds. Um, in a lot of cases, what you, what you, I think what we need to do is to encourage that sort of, that sort of thing, um, to get, get government out of the, out of the business of over-regulating, of over, you know, over, uh, overseeing remotely these businesses and allow them to do what needs to be done. Um, as a, as a matter of fact, now I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up, uh, uh, you gave you sent me a, a couple of videos uh, to watch, uh, you know, not not prior to not prior not preparation for this, but to, to kind of educate me on uh, some of the ways, some of the ideas of uh, left libertarianism, and sure. uh, I really I really appreciated that. Uh, but the the idea that a small group of people knows better what to do for their business than a large corporation does was one of the key ideas that I took out of that, which was, which was really kind of interesting because in, in one sense, you've got people who would, who would look at that and absolutely agree that, yeah, you know, a, a, you know, a, a group of, a group of 200 people uh, run, running a, uh, you know, a uh, uh, manufacturing mill uh, or, or, or a, a machine shop would know better how to run their business than uh, you know uh, machine shop incorporated located in, in uh, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, right? Sure. They would know better what their local environment is. They know better what their local pay skills are. What uh, what their employees are looking for. Uh, they would really be able to make a better choice and, and and build a better company. And some of those same people would then look at that and say, and of course the government should be involved in telling them how they should run their business as well. And completely ignore the fact that you're just trading out one large faceless corporation for another large faceless organization. And one is, you know, one's a corporation and one's government. Uh, the idea that people know best how to organize themselves and organize their lives uh, is a very libertarian concept. Um, the idea that you want to be free of someone, uh, someone outside, you know, outside who is unfamiliar with your situation, telling you how to live your life, is a very libertarian concept. Um, you know, getting it's it's one of one of those things that that really uh, speaks to us as Americans. Uh, it speaks to us about freedoms. The idea that we're not just responsible, but that we're capable of ordering our lives and our communities in a way that benefits all of us. Now, um, while we were talking, uh, somebody has called in. I don't know if they wanted to be wrong on the air or not, so we're going to find out. Um, I, you okay with taking okay. a caller? Um, I'll that, go, that okay? Sure, I'll take a caller. Okay. Now, we actually are making extremely good time, by the way. There are only two major factors left to discuss, so I guess we'll see how this goes. But, caller, since I know you're listening, I want to make you aware of my policy, which is um, when I bring somebody on, because I don't actually always take callers on my show, 
Um, get to your question. Don't get on my show just to sound off because this is about his answer and not about any proselytizing you may want to do. No offense to anybody, but I've seen you know, people who get up and want to ask questions, quote unquote, and then they spend 10 minutes talking before they ever get around to asking the guest anything. So caller from 605 area code, you're on the air. Okay. My question to the candidate is, um, were you nominated by the Libertarian Convention to run for president? No, actually, the, uh, the way the Libertarian Party functions – uh, the libertarian, the national convention is going to be held in May, and uh, right now we have, uh, I believe, probably probably around a dozen to fifteen very active candidates that are campaigning within the Libertarian Party, seeking the nomination from the party. So this is uh, this is our process of uh, of okay. getting the nomination and deciding who the nominee is going to be. They're essentially in their primary. Okay, Go ahead. And, uh, all right. Bad, yeah. Okay, I'm a libertarian, but I'm not a dues-paying libertarian. So I have, I'm a libertarian right. by philosophy. And um, I give you kudos for going out there and trying to um, expand on the f- philosophy again and trying to get yourself elected. My question is, are you on this particular show because you're trying to hone your interview skills, or are you actually trying to reach um, a large audience? Uh, a little bit of both. One is uh, the first interview skills. It's always good to practice. It's always the more experience you have doing something, the easier it is. Um, I will say that honestly, uh, doing this uh, two or three months ago, I would have been in a cold sweat right now, talking talking to someone, not knowing what the question is, not knowing what you know what I'm going to be asked. Uh, I'm a lot more relaxed about that now, so it, it does make a big difference. But yeah, primarily right now, I, I, I came on uh, to talk with Neil because I want to reach a larger audience. I want to uh, explain explain myself, explain libertarian thought to uh, as many people as possible. I know that there there are some there are Democrats and Republicans, independents, uh, people who would say, "Oh, I'm not affiliated," listening to the show, and I want to give them the opportunity to hear what a uh, I would call myself a pragmatic. Uh, a pragmatic libertarian candidate would say in response to some of these issues. Was that all, caller? Did that answer your question? All right. Yeah, that's fine. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, sir. All right. So that went pretty well. Um, I guess uh, (laughs) that'll segue into um, my next question, which is going to be actually on the topic of abortion. Now, one of the things that I noted about, you know, your platform, and I remember pointing this out to you, that is that you're a pro-life libertarian, and I've only ever known of one other. I'm Same. sure that there are more, but that was Congressman Ron Paul. So um, could you expand a little bit on the idea of being pro-life and, and on the matter of abortion? And of course, this inevitably also means, you know, not just your specific beliefs on the topic, but if you were the president of the United States, you know, how you would approach the situation. Right. Now there's, uh, in the libertarian party, there is a, there is a split, there's a divide. And I think you, you honestly see that, uh, 
among the, the anarchist wings and the, the minarchist wings, the, the ones who believe that uh, no government is the solution and the ones who believe that uh, minimal government is, is where we need to be or where, where we are best suited to be. Um, excuse me. Uh, if you read through the Libertarian Party platform, and uh, I actually did this out in Iowa, um, had a bunch of sections highlighted, uh, absent the platform position 1.5, I think, which is explicitly pro-choice. It talks about protecting life. It talks about protecting, protecting innocent life. It talks about uh, uh, taking, uh, taking care of people and, and good relations. And, and uh, the core principles of the core principle of libertarianism is non-aggression principle, that you do not initiate violence against someone else. Um, all of which in my mind means that as long as you consider an unborn child to be a human being, that the idea of initiating force against them is something that should be foreign to libertarian thought. Now, you've got other people who, who will uh, argue that you know, an, unborn, you know, an unborn child at some point is a human being, but before that is, is a clump of cells. Uh, you have other people that would argue uh, that you no, know, at, at all points, and as long as as long as the, that child is dependent on the mother, that that is a situation where the the child is uh, should be considered to be victimizing the mother in some way. Um, so if the mother decides that that's not acceptable, that she should be she should be able to end that situation. Um, so there's a, there's a broad range of thought within the Libertarian Party. Uh, one of the reasons that I do appreciate the Libertarian Party, uh, even as a pro-life candidate, is that I can sit down and talk with and discuss the issue with people that I don't agree with. Uh, in in uh, Philadelphia, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down and, uh, and talk with someone who, who basically said, hey, I want you to know I am, I am pro-choice. This is where I'm at, and you're pro-life. And we, we spent maybe five minutes talking about it um, and discussing it from, from our two different viewpoints and uh, explain, trying to explain ourselves to each other. Uh, same thing happened out in, in Chicago a couple of weeks ago when I had a chance to talk to someone. And, and really good discussions. And these are discussions that, about a tough issue that you can't have uh, if you are if you are within the Republican Party, you can't you can't have if you're within the Democrat Party, and I I'm sorry to say that, and I'm sure that some people are going to tell me that that's you know that's not the case that they're a Republican and they're willing to talk about this. I'm not talking about individuals. I'm talking about at the party level, um, particularly in, in this cycle uh, with the Democrats, and you you see the, uh, the various statements about how you can't you can't be uh, pro-life and be a Democrat. Um, it's, it's kind of that's kind of disturbing to me to think that there that basically you have some parties where uh, you have a very difficult issue, but they're unwilling to discuss it and unwilling to understand each other's sides and each other's issues. Uh, you find that in the in the Libertarian Party, and I really appreciate that. Even with people that I may disagree with strongly, it's a pleasure to be able to try and work through philosophically, morally, uh, intellectually, and understand these issues. And that's actually one of the reasons and, why uh, I'm doing this series of shows is to try to facilitate conversations mm -hmm. like that. But please continue. Yeah. Now, the, uh, 
the other part of your your question, I think, was uh, as you know, President Rob, what does that mean to be pro-life, specifically in terms of the abortion issue? Um, and I, I'll say I'll, I'll kind of kind of say right now that uh, as far as pro-life goes, uh, abortion is uh, a very important part of it. It's a it's actually a small a smaller part of it than you would think because uh, you know, I'm the uh, adoptive father of three girls. Um, so adoption is very important to me. Uh, I've got several several families and several people that I know. My my mother actually was a foster child. So uh, uh, knowing you know, understanding that that pro life extends past you know people like to say oh yeah you're just interested in the fetuses until they're born. No uh, pro life means supporting uh, children at all stages in the, all stages in their life, making sure that they are part of part of a good family, making sure there's some place where they're loved and cared for and can be brought up and 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 taught and uh, and and brought to brought to the point of adulthood. Um, all of those are very important parts of being pro-life. Um, but as far as abortion goes as as a president, um, one of the things is one of the things that I think, uh, you know, obviously uh, the president can do is he's got a, a bully pulpit. He can he can, he can uh, speak to the nation. He can speak to governors, and I think that becomes very important because if, uh, for example, if if you get uh, Roe v. Wade overturned, then uh, you know, the issue of abortion rolls back to the states, and then it's up to it's up to individual states to to make those determinations. Um, I. I get some heat from this from uh, from some people who are very 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 solidly pro life, um, you know, who are who are very very staunchly believe that uh, life begins at conception and at that point you have a human being. Um, I do, you know, in my own personal philosophy, uh, believe that there are situations, for example, when you're talking about uh, instances of rape. Uh, when you're talking about uh, very rare instances where uh, the you have to choose between the life of the the mother or the life of a child uh, before they're born, that in those cases the only person that is that is equipped to make those choices and morally has the 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 authority to make choices in those cases are the mother. Um, so there are certain instances where I believe that a, abortion is something that we should not be offering up as a first choice or as the best choice, but it is a choice that needs to needs to be left on the table. Um, the, those abortion, those number of abortions are a, a fraction, a small fraction of what goes on in the country these days. Ninety, I believe, ninety-seven percent of abortions are uh, elective. Uh, women who have abortions have a, a significantly higher rate of depression, suicide, complications during later pregnancies. So it's a, it's a medically uh, dangerous procedure, not just not just immediately, but but over, over overall for the life of the lifetime of the mother. Um, when you start looking at uh, you know, polls of, of Americans, you find, find that uh, uh, 81% of them, for example, believe that uh, abortion should be illegal in the third trimester. 65% believe that it should be illegal in the second trimester. Um, 60% of all pro-choice Americans, I'm not, ta- I'm not talking all Americans or all uh, pro-life Americans, but 60% of uh, Americans who identify as pro-choice believe that abortion should be restricted to, to uh, the first three months at a maximum. Um, 
So I think it, overall, in terms of society, we are swinging towards being uh, being pro-life, being being anti-abortion. Um, I think the idea that uh, uh, as a president, uh, you know, as, as a uh, uh, someone who is in charge of enforcing uh, the laws of the land, that there may be instances where uh, you would want to step in and say, you know what, this is this was the obvious taking of a life. We need we need to uh, examine that legally. Uh, that's certainly an issue. But uh, I think overall, what we're seeing is that regardless of who is in the White House. Regardless of who, of where we go as a country, uh, the American people are are standing up and saying, you know what, abortion is not something we want to be involved in. It is not something we should be involved in. And uh, if there are other opportunities and other ways to deal with with uh, these situations, then that should be our first choice as opposed to abortion. Okay, I feel I understand definitely where you were coming from with that. And, you know, you definitely put yourself in an interesting situation, you know, and um, I guess, you know, that kind of, you know, for your specific issue, obviously, you being a Christian in the Libertarian Party, you know, where at least in my experience, the majority of the candidates that I know that are Christian and Libertarian thinking end up in the Constitution Party, um, you know, but if there's some questions that get thrown on the table and it, it's more or less an issue. And I, I think that I'll give you this bonus question because we definitely have plenty of time to get to the last <laughs> question um, is uh, what about gay marriage? That That's an interesting one because uh, I find myself, since you brought it up as a Christian and a libertarian, um, one of the things that I have to see things uh, is, the filter that I have to see things through now is okay. There are certain things that I do not approve of as a Christian, or even not even talking about being a Christian, but just as someone with more uh, more of a conservative social values. Um, and I, I freely admit that that's where I'm at. That's that's one of the reasons why I told you, you know. That, you want to talk about abortion? Let's talk about abortion. You want to talk about religion? We can talk about religion. Um, I really do not want to hide who I am. Uh, you know, that's a very politician, politicky way to do things, and I kind of want to avoid that. I want to be upfront with people about where I am and what I believe. Um, but as a Christian and as, a, as someone who's more socially conservative, I'm in a strange situation where, I, for example, uh, you know, people people talk about the idea of sex work, right? It, you know, and hey, should prostitution be legalized or or decriminalized? I guess is is, is the idea that uh, you have two consenting adults that are that are uh, engaged in uh, exchanging money for a service, right? Um, the idea of uh, you know, for example, you know, uh, decriminalizing drugs, right? If someone decides that they want to they want to uh, come home at the end of the day and have a beer or have a joint or have something else in order to relax and they're not harming anybody else directly. I may disapprove of that. And in some instances, I, you know, I think I would, but ultimately I find myself thinking, okay, yes, I disapprove of that. Am I willing to see someone die for it? And that is the real question. Right. That is the, the crux of the matter, because any time you start saying there ought to be a law, what you're saying is 
I want someone to come in and use force to make someone behave the way that I want them to. And if they resist, I want them to be put in a cage. And if they say, I do not want to be put in a cage, then I'm okay with them being killed. Because that's what happens when you enforce a law. The police come in, a law enforcement agency comes in and says, you will do what we tell you to do, or we will arrest you. And if you resist arrest and you are vigorous enough in it, we will kill you. So I find myself asking, okay, if there's two men who want to be married, even if as a Christian I look at that and say, you know what, I would not approve of that. Even if as a, someone who's a social conservative, I look at that and say, you know what, I, I, I have questions about whether that makes sense for society as a whole. I am not willing to see someone killed over that. I'm not willing to see someone killed over a uh, consensual relationship, sexual relationship, even if there's money involved. I'm not willing to see someone killed over uh, what particular type of uh, drug they want to put into their system. Now, if you're, going, if you're doing something and it's harming someone else, then yes, I believe that's a, that's a situation where, the, where uh, uh, the government can step in and the government should step in because the government exists to protect people from harm, to protect people from fraud, protect people from violence. Um, if you are uh, not, ju- not just shooting up heroin, but you are getting high and jumping into your uh, pickup truck and going drag racing down uh, a major highway during rush hour, then yeah, there's a problem there. And the, the drugs are only part of it because you're just being an idiot and you need to be taken care of in those cases. But uh, as long as you're not hurting someone, I don't feel the government should have a right to, to step in and tell you, you can't do this. I should be able yeah. to tell you that I don't agree, but the government right. should not be able to force you. Well, and I think that it, it comes down to the, the, the involvement specifically in the government is just whether or not people are allowed to engage in a marriage contract. And, you know, yes. so, I mean, it, do you feel that obviously, I mean, I think I know your answer anyway, but you're, what you're saying is, is, and just let me be sure I'm clear, is that obviously you don't feel um, the government should just tell two consenting adults that they're not allowed to engage in a marriage contract because you don't personally agree with this. When you're saying I don't, you don't go that way. I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, if uh, the government shouldn't be, should not be able to say you two aren't allowed to get married, but you two are. And to flip, flip it around, uh, if you go, if you go to, if you go to a, a church and you say, Hey, I want to be married. Right. And me, here's me and me and my uh, future spouse. Uh, the church should be able to say, I'm sorry. No, we don't do that here. Or yeah, I'm sorry. We only perform gay marriages and you're a heterosexual couple. Right. It's, it's a question. And, and in that case, you should not be able to go to the government and, and be able to say, yeah, I want you to force them to, to accommodate me. If you get the government out of it entirely. And uh, again, you're going to hear this a lot from libertarians. You're going to hear this a lot from uh, uh, from from uh, anarchists and from minarchists and whatnot. Government's the problem. We need to separate government from life. The more we separate government and get government out of life, the better things will be for all of us. 
All right. So now I'm going to move on to the environment and essentially just how this plays in. And although there will be a general environment issue and you have plenty of time to answer, um, I'll have some follow-up questions for you as well. But um, Mm -hmm. it also will be one of the things that's poignant about this for people is that they're very interested in the views of candidates when it comes to the issue of global warming. So general environment what is the role of a government in protecting us from environmental dangers so far as, especially when it comes to, you know, other people engaging environmental destruction that has the potential to harm everyone. And what is your Mm -hmm. view on global warming and what do you think your role as president would be in these two things? Okay. Um, First off, it's something that kind of surprised, uh, surprised me when I started getting into into uh, talking, looking at libertarian thought, a um, couple of things. One was that, oh, wow, there is a libertarian argument for, for a pro-life position. Uh, the other is that there there is a libertarian argument for, uh, I won't say the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, because I think the EPA is is uh, overpowered and, and over you know overregulated and uh, uh, just an abomination in and of itself. But there is an argument to be made, a libertarian argument to be made for uh, gover- government involvement in uh, managing and making sure that shared resources like our environment are taken care of. Um, now, in, in a large sense, the, the libertarian response to that is that the market does a lot better job of taking care of the environment than uh, regulations do. Um, for a great example is uh, you look at uh, what we're seeing now in the development with, uh, with Tesla and various other, other companies of electric cars. Uh, there's a market demand out there. There are technologies that are being developed in order to make these things possible, and people are responding positively to them. Um, that's, that is a success of the market, not necessarily of the government. If the gov- if, let's be honest, if the government had uh, decided, if the government was deciding just how cars would operate, uh, we would still be using 1950s technology uh, because they would have come up with the regulations in, in uh, 1960, looked at the last 10 years best, uh, uh, you know, you know what, what they call, uh, you know, best practices and uh, put 1950 engine technology into law. And we would have we would have still be dealing with that today. Um, when we when you get the government out of the environment, uh, you know, out of regulating the environment, you allow for companies and technologies to flourish that can do things that we. And this is what inventions are. They do things that we never imagined were possible. Um, if if the if the EPA mandates that you you know, if you are running this type of this type of factory that you use this type of technology to make sure that that uh, that you don't have more than X amount of particulates, you know, per million in your in your exhaust, then that means that you are unable to use something that's actually better, because the law says you have to use a certain technique or a certain technology. Um, so in terms of the in terms of the environment in general, I think the market does better when you look at. Uh, that uh, look at agencies 
that manage land versus private entities that manage land. In a lot of cases, uh, particularly when you're talking about the game preserves or hunting lands that are privately owned, you see those managed much better than uh, any sort of government agency can 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 do. Um, when you uh, when you see uh, there's actually a gentleman that I used to uh, follow online, a, a blogger. Um, his business is going into state parks and national parks and saying, hey, we can come in here and run this, run basically your park franchise for you as a private agency. Uh, we will we will staff the staff the park. We will we will make sure there are rangers here. We will make sure that there there are uh, people here. We will collect admissions and we will do all this better and cheaper than the government agency is doing now. And we will actually make money for the government instead of making instead of this being a, a monetary sink. He actually has a business doing that, um, and his you know his primary objection to that is oh you're turning you're turning over this uh this you know federal property or this this state property into a private organization to run well yes because they do it better because their pay depends on them performing well so they actually you know do a better job than the government does i think you see that throughout the, throughout the uh environmental issue that when you have when you have people involved in taking care of the environment who have a stake in it and want to see the environment taken care of, they do a much better job than, than any bureaucracy that you can put together. That said, I think there is still, still a reason to have, maybe not the EPA as it currently exists, but some sort of environmental oversight because you're talking about shared resources. You're talking about uh, clean air. You're talking about clean water. And you want to make sure that uh, everybody is playing well together. You want to make sure that there's some coordination uh, among eight, among entities, making sure that everything is, you know, everything is on the up and up, and that nobody is uh, taking advantage of the fact that they that they can just pump out whatever type of pollutants they want and uh, pack up and roll off, and and uh, everybody around them has to deal with it. So there is a, there is an agency. Uh, there is a call for having some sort of government oversight, I think, of the environment just because it is a common resource that is in, in, tempting and incredibly easy to abuse, even if you're not trying to do that. So that makes us uh, – we have to now address the issue of global warming. Um, and as far mm -hmm. as what your take is and what you feel your role as president would be in, you know, in, in, on this topic. Yeah. Um, global warming. Um, I think that I, I take the tact that, that, that yes, there is there is uh, uh, global warming. I question whether or not the the assertion that it is uh, largely due to man's effort is uh, whether that makes sense or not. Um, and in in a, in a very large sense, um, I think what you, what history shows us what economics shows us is that prosperous societies tend to be the ones that take the best care of the environment. Um, you look at the history of the United States, and as we became wealthier, we became more concerned with taking care of the environment. We became more concerned with environmental issues. Um, and in a lot of cases, that was reflected through uh, government agencies, but it was also reflected through 
just the the will of the people and the desire of the people to uh, to to say, hey, you know what, we we want to uh, want to live someplace where there's not trash on the ground, where where uh, we don't have to worry about pollution, where we don't have to worry about 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 uh, our water sources or, or water contamination, um, which means that one of the best ways to ensure as a, you know, as a country and as a whole, as, as humanity as a whole, the, one of the best ways to ensure that we are taking the best care of our environment and that we're minimizing our impact on the environment is to help lift other nations out of poverty. And we do that by encouraging free trade. We do that by encouraging other nations to, uh, to work with us and to to follow follow our lead in terms of uh, in, in terms of things like uh, making sh- making sure that their uh, economies that their that their legal systems that their laws are geared towards helping their people succeed helping helping their countries uh, their countries succeed and grow. Um, it's something it's something that we accomplish. Uh, not just not just individually, but by being lead, world leaders and saying, here's here's what we want to do. We want a better environment, and the best way that we can think to do that is to help make you as successful and as rich as the United States. Let's go ahead and do that. That kind of and that also I'll, I'll kind of kind of throw out throw out here. Uh, you know, if you'd like to, I don't know if you'd like to talk about the issue of uh, nuclear power and renewables. By all means, go ahead. Okay, um, I am absolutely 100% in favor of nuclear power. Uh, whether you're whether you're talking uh, uh, fission or fusion, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, we will have functional fusion technology in my lifetime. Um, but the idea of being able to cheaply and efficiently supply energy without polluting the environment through uh, the emission of CO2 or the emission of other greenhouse gases is going to be an incredible game changer. And that's something that I think, as the United States, we should absolutely be pushing towards. Get the you know, again talked about the, you know what car engines would look like if the government had nailed down their requirements and their specifications back in the 1950s. That's exactly what happened with nuclear power. Right now, you have all sorts of experimental uh, experimental uh, reactor piles that are that are being developed uh, by companies like you know, like Rolls Royce, uh, by other agencies, uh, other organizations that are that are truly amazing. But you can't get, you can't get them built because they don't fit with what the government says a nuclear reactor should look like. Right. So there's all sorts of legal hurdles. There's all sorts of regulatory hurdles. There's all sorts of governmental hurdles. Get those out of the way and let's see how well we can do, how much we can do to make it possible to supply, supply the world with all the energy it could possibly need. Once you have that energy, there's so many things that you can do with it. That opens up so many doors, so many avenues. That means that that uh, you know these these countries that are struggling because they they don't have the resource they may have the resources that they they could use to prosper but they don't have the the ability to use those use those and turn those into something now they have the ability to start up manufacturing now they have the energy density that they need in order to to make things happen 
and uh, very very much very much uh, renewables come along with that because although you know nuclear power is fantastic, uh, you got to realize that in some some senses there's uh, there's times when you would really like to be able to have a backup for that, and uh, being able to say hey yeah here we've got I think probably one of the best examples is uh, geothermal or uh, hydroelectric power, something that basically is just there that you can take advantage of and say, yeah, here we go. We're going to use the you're going to use the uh, temperature differentials in the in the earth, or we're going to use the uh, uh, flow of water by gravity, and uh, we can generate power out of that basically out of thin air. Um, that's a, I mean, if you can if you, Places where you can do that, that is fantastic. Let's go ahead and do that. Places where you can't do that, let's go ahead and use nuclear. Places where you absolutely can't do do both, and there's some problem with, uh, you know, getting you know getting some sort of uh, uh, some sort of energy transfer going on. Uh, maybe look at uh, electric, uh, you know, electric cars. Maybe look at uh, some in some cases, you know, gasoline, uh, electric hybrids make more sense. Uh, diesel for engines, you know, hauling large freight. Maybe that continues to be a be a, something that we want to use. But we can develop a mix of technologies that is geared towards optimizing our energy production, minimizing our energy use, and maximizing our wealth. Okay, well, that's a good. Solid answer there, I would say. Um, now, one of the other questions I did ask Spike, um, and this just kind of also goes to all the voters. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm doing this series is that I want people who vote for the primary uh, two parties, you know, the duopoly, so to speak, to be able to have alternatives. And I would say in general, um, gauging basically on what you've discussed with me, I would say most likely um, you would probably attract Republican voters. Um, I'm not saying you couldn't attract people outside of that, but why should a Republican or any voter choose you over the, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, depending <laughs> on the outcome of the weird Democratic primary? Um, you know, what what is it that you feel? Because a lot of people, I think, are disenfranchised and they're, they're looking for something else. And electability isn't even really why I, I do this. It's more about we need to kind of get to a point where uh, we eventually break mm -hmm. that duopoly uh, for the sake of everybody involved. Yeah. You know, so for you as a libertarian candidate, a representative of the libertarian party, but also just you as an individual, why should these voters think to themselves, you know what, I I'm going to go ahead and, you know, and clip down here to the Libertarian Party candidate and, you know, scribble in that box and put it in the machine. What what do you bring that they don't? <laughs> um, I've, I've given some thought to this. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is I really don't think there's a lot of people voting for Donald Trump. I mean, he gets a lot of votes, but I also don't think that there's a lot of people that are going to be voting for Joe Biden. And at this point, it looks like he's he's the one that the the Democrats are are saying, yeah, he's going to get the nod, and uh, you know, Bernie gets screwed over again. But there's a lot of people that are voting against Donald Trump. There's a lot of people that are voting against Joe Biden. Um, the last election, I can tell you, uh, coming from a conservative circles, religious circles, 
socially conservative circles, there are a lot of people who did not want to vote for Trump, but they were very happy to vote against Hillary Clinton and, uh, and vice versa. Right, I know some liberal friends. They 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 just held their nose and they didn't like Hillary, but they were going to vote against the Republican. One of the things that I want to do, and one of the things that I think, uh, if I'm if I'm not the Libertarian candidate, I'm going to to talk to the Libertarian candidate and and work with them and, and try and encourage them to do, is to give the American people someone to vote for. Give them someone that uh, that they can look at and say, you know what. I'm tired of voting against him. I'm tired of voting against her. I'm tired of, of being involved in this, this opposition idea. I want someone I can vote for. And if you look at a lot of uh, libertarian policies, um, we, touched, we touched on a bunch. You mentioned uh, – you talked about you could see why uh, conservatives would want to vote for me, I think, right? And uh, so you've got – the, the question here is, okay, why, why would a Democrat want to vote for, for a Libertarian? And uh, what's interesting to me is that you, you did touch on a lot of uh, kind of conservative-leaning issues in, in some sense, but uh, there are a bunch of issues that Libertarians actually find themselves a lot more aligned with the left than, uh, than with the, the right. Um, we talk about uh, drug legalization, drug decriminalization. Um, pretty much across the board, you'll find you'll find uh, libertarians are in agreement on that. Uh, if you talk about uh, ending foreign wars, uh, the really the only question uh, you know, among libertarian circles is how fast and how hard do you do you do this? Um, because everybody wants to, everybody that I've talked to on the libertarian side. Uh, myself included, wants to wants to end the wars, wants to bring troops home, wants to stop uh, being the world's policeman, um, which you know answers questions of foreign policy, which answers questions of, of economics. You know, it allows us to to draw down the the military spending and and uh, uh, stop stop taking money from people for, in order to to send, send overseas. Um, if you talk about uh, border issues. You'll find that libertarians, in a lot of lot of cases, are a lot more aligned with uh, with the left than the right. And the question in a lot of these is not so much how do you how do you pitch an issue like this to one side or the other, because it's really easy to talk to, uh, for example, to sit down and talk to someone who's who's uh, who's a disaffected Democrat and talk to them about ending the wars and talk to them about. Uh, uh, Talk to them about drug drug decriminalization. Talk to them about opening the border, right? Uh, reforming immigration, getting getting us back to a to a sane immigration policy. Myself, I, I favor return to the Ellis Island model. You can, you come you come to a point of entry, we check you out. No diseases, no violent violent criminal history. Here's your here's your visa. Welcome. Uh, you know we want you to be an American. But a, a challenge is being able to take the issues that resonate with the right and take the issues that resonate with the left and swap them around and speak to, speak to those issues in terms that the other side understands. Uh, just to give you an example, one of the reasons that I do like to, like to refer to my immigration policy to talk about it as an Ellis Island model 
right, is because it talks about opening the borders, which is appealing to the left. But it also, on the, you know, when you're talking to someone who's on, you know, coming from a, from a, a more Republican point of view, a more conservative point of view, someone who might think, think you know, hey, you know, we did, need to secure our borders, it's a reminder to them that, hey, what made this country great was not putting borders in place. It was welcoming people because that's what civilized people do. We take in the, the, the poor. We take in the huddled masses yearning to be free. Do you remember that? That is, that is the appropriate Republican response. And then turn, turn it around, go, go, to, uh, go to the Democrat side, go to the liberal side of the House, and say, you know what, I, one of the things that I want to do as president is reduce the size of government. Oh, you want to get rid of the government? What, you know, what, how, how could you mean that? What, what do you mean by that? Well, let me ask you, right? Would you like to get rid of, uh, would you like to get rid of ICE? Would you like to cut back on the Department of Homeland Security? Would you like to get rid of the agencies that are engaged in, uh, in domestic spying? Because those are all government agencies. So you talk to people and you say, hey, this is where I'm coming from from the other side, but I'm going to put it in language that you understand. And you try and get people to understand that the problem is not left versus right. The problem is not conservative versus, versus liberal. The problem is us versus government. And once you realize that government is the problem, you start to realize that liberty is the solution, whether that is, that is going to be uh, market-based, some, you know, something very, very, uh, you know, uh, right-wing sort of a, sort of end cap, you know, market, you know, free markets and everything, or it's it's going to be more of a, a, a left libertarian, voluntarist. Let's all let's all uh, let's get the government out of our lives and. and uh, form uh, individual units where we, where we function together the way we want to, once you get people understanding that they can vote for that, that they can support that instead of having to spend their energy opposing someone else, I think that we, we have a winning solution. I think that we have the uh, opportunity to get out there and convince people that the Libertarian Party right now at this time and this place more than ever is the party of principle, is the party of solutions. We're the adults in the room who want to give you back your life while everybody else treats you like a child. Okay. Um, so there is one other aspect of, of, of this particular part of my plan to cover all these candidates, and I, I gave Spike this opportunity as well, although um, he didn't actually take it directly is that when we get to the debate phase of this series, I'm kind of hoping to discourage as much interpersonal attacks as possible, but I recognize mm-hmm. that sometimes there are situations where somebody just needs to be called out. Um, I would say, for example, watching mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren take out a crowbar and beat Bloomberg over the head would probably be an excellent example of somebody who is dying to get it back <laughs> on stage. So, um, you know, but it, so if there was any opportunity and basically this is your opportunity that if you wanted to voice anything about any other candidates, their positions, uh, you know, that you don't agree with that you think perhaps might necessarily be good for the party or good, you know, you know, good for voters in general. Um, this would be yeah. your opportunity 
to share those opinions, at least in this series. Oh, I'll be very honest with you. Every candidate, uh, every libertarian candidate out there, I have some sort of disagreement with in terms of policy. Um, And that, (laughs) in a very, very, very libertarian sense, is awesome because we've basically got a marketplace of ideas. We're throwing all these ideas out. We have all these, these you know, plans for how things could go, how things shouldn't go, how things might go. And we're trying to figure out which, which one will stick. You know, one, of the, one of the things that uh, uh, you learn, I've been involved in doing startups for oh geez, almost 20 years now. And uh, one of the things you learn is that a lot of companies fail. They have an idea, they put it out there, and they, the idea just doesn't get traction. That's the phase we're in right now. We are all putting out our ideas. We're trying to see what gets traction. We were actually just, just talking today after the uh, Massachusetts debate about the fact that, uh, that we all want to get to the same place. We all want less government. We all want more individual liberty. We all want people voluntarily helping each other. The only question is which road we are going to take. And some of them are bumpier. Some of them are, are longer. Some of them we're going to go a little slower. Some, of, some people want to go faster. But we're all headed for the same – we're all headed in the same direction. The, I, the fact that we have disagreements in terms of policy, in terms of uh, how fast we're going to go or how we're going to do certain things is good. That means that we are – we're, we're, we are to use, use a uh, uh, biblical illusion that, you know, in uh, Christian terms, they, they talk about the uh, men who, who understand the word of God uh, talking together like iron sharpening iron. We, we are making each other better and sharper by, by interacting. And that absolutely is the case. That's what I've seen over the last uh, couple of months on, on the, uh, uh, the, the debate scene and the, the convention scene. Um, and what makes that work, I think, is the fact that although we disagree with each other, uh, sometimes very deeply in terms of how things should go and how, to, how we would like to see this country go and what sort of proposal we would like, like to see our candidate put forth to the American people, we like each other as individuals. We are all on the same team. We all want to pull in the same direction. We have talked time and time again about how uh, we are looking forward to whoever wins the nomination. They are going to have one of the best teams, one of the most enthusiastic teams behind them, because we are all going to be willing to put ourselves out there for them and help make their mission something that that, uh, uh, can resonate with the American people. Um, Each and every one of the candidates, I have a deep personal respect for. Uh, I like them all. And uh, they're, honestly, you know, they, they are uh, fellow believers in liberty. They are you know, fellow travelers on this campaign trail. And uh, we are going to, one way or another, we are going to make sure that whoever it is that ends up in front of the American people, we are all going to do our best to preach a message of liberty. Okay, well, that was a good answer. Um, I think that this has been a good conversation. I think that we've we've covered a lot of ground. Um, you've been very efficient in your use of time. 
Um, so we actually have uh, eight minutes remaining that you may use in any way you like, or if you feel that you've said everything you need to say, we can stop here. It's up to you. Um, was there anything that you'd like to address that perhaps we didn't get an opportunity to talk about? Um, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw out the, the steamer pitch. Uh, Sam Rob, samrob2020.com. You can hit the website and uh, find links to social media, to, to uh, Twitter and to Facebook. Uh, you can also find a lot more information, in-depth information on uh, the policies I'm proposing. Um, I would love to hear from you. Uh, you can send an email to uh, info at samrom2020.com, or you can drop me, a, drop me a line or a message on Facebook or on Twitter um, if you have some questions or, or would like some further clarification. Always happy to, to answer questions as best I can. Like I said, uh, I'm trying to be very transparent about who I am, about where, what I'm doing, and uh, if there's something that you don't agree with me on, uh, I would love to love to talk to you about it, but I would ask you to, to take a good look at uh, take a good look at my policies and my positions and see if uh, if we agree largely in other areas. Because frankly, if you if you can look at my platform, if you can look at the libertarian platform and say, you know what, I I agree with 80% of you, 80% of what you're saying here, it sounds good. Um, we can work together. We can we can get some stuff done. We can, we may disagree on some other things, but you know what? We can fight about those four, five, ten years down the line. Once we get all the other big ones taken care of, once we once we've got this education mess taken care of, once we've got COVID nineteen stomped out, once once we've uh, uh, cleared up the the whole issue of foreign policy and foreign relations and and uh, foreign wars, you know, there's a lot that that uh, I think that the American people will find that they agree with the Libertarian Party on that they would agree with the Sam Rob platform. Um, take a look at it and just see, is it something that you think that you could support? And is it something that you could get behind, even if you don't agree on everything? Because I guarantee you, if you go and take a close look at your, uh, your current party's platform, there's going to be things in there that you don't like and that you don't agree with. And I think you'll find that that uh, on the libertarian side, you have a lot more that you can you can support than than you would worry about. Um, other than that, Neil, no, I, I think I'm, I think I'm good. Unless you've got some other questions or something else I'd like to bring up. No, no, just to uh, bring to the attention to the listeners, uh, you know, thanks again for tuning into V Radio. Um, if you'd like to support this uh, program on. Patreon, that link is provided in the description for this program. In addition to that, you will also find a link to Sam's website. Uh, last night, I had Spike Cohen on, the candidate for vice president of the Libertarian Party, uh, who will be running with Vermin Supreme. Um, I'm currently in negotiations now with um, some of the Green Party candidates, as well as um, more of the Libertarian Party candidates. It's tentative at this time. Um, Lincoln Sheffy is supposed to be on. We just haven't nailed down a specific day at this time. Um, and a fellow named, I want to say Arvin actually contacted me via email, um, in regards to, um, having him on the, um, podcast, or actually, I guess his, rather his campaign manager contacted me. So we'll be looking into that. Um, and then my goal is to start, as I said, a series of debates leading after this. Um, I know that the Libertarian Party uh, primary situation is a little strange anyway, and then primaries have been made even more strange by the circumstances with this virus. So, um, oh, yeah. but 
know, tune in. And all I ask from the candidates and also just from the listeners in general, spread awareness of this podcast. Um, I don't really make any money from it, actually, if anything, at this stage. Anyway, I did make money in the past, but I took a long hiatus. And um, so it's not I'm not doing this out of anything other than just the fact that I'm um, like many other people stuck in my house. And we're going to about to be a lot more stuck in our house as things go forward. And I wanted to be able to do something positive uh, and lend my resources for that purpose. And one of them is, is I've got the gift of gab and I can talk to people and get people thinking. And that's why, you know, as I said, it's a benefit to me to have people on my show, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything they say, because people need to be able to talk about politics. And I think that that's one of the biggest breakdowns that we have right now in society. Um, you know, I have friends of mine who think I'm crazy because on my Facebook wall, um, I have a lot of conservative friends because my children are involved in wrestling. And for whatever reason, there's an awful lot of <laughs> conservatives involved with wrestling. Um, you know, and then I have a lot of, you know, left <laughs> friends. And so they start brawling on my Facebook page and I'm like, okay, guys, I, I want to be able to have an environment where you guys all engage in a civil fashion and it's proved to be very good, you know? Um, but it, it's, I've just, it, one of the things that kind of, you know, brought it to my attention was just, man, this is, this situation is so bad. And with the pandemic going on, people are just getting more and more crazy. You know, uh, one of the things that Andrew Yang pointed out, um, in his book, a former Democratic Party candidate, was that the more uh, nervous people get, the more uh, essentially worried they are about their future, uh, you literally lose IQ points, like as in their science behind it, like not permanently, but during the course of that situation of stress, um, as much as 12 IQ can go away, apparently, according to science, just because you find yourself hyped up. And, you know, we need to be able to, especially as things get worse in this situation we need to be able to communicate with each other in a civil fashion and, and be able to spread our ideas and i hate to say it but the left in particular right now has not really been doing a very good job of that uh, we have a lot of people that have moved into this situation and their solution for everything is to you know pull fire fire alarms you know to get speakers that they don't want on college campuses to not be allowed to talk and you know as a result you know um essentially we're, we're bunkering down when we really should be reaching out to each other and exchanging our ideas. You know, my own personal political views have evolved a great deal over the years. And if you look at my archives, you'll see that because going back to 2008, when I was a Ron Paul Republican, then I was a Mike Gravel libertarian. Um, you know, before all of that, I was independent and I had supported Ross Perot when he had run a long time ago, you know, but we need to be in a situation where people can evolve like that, you know, say is a heck of a lot better than what we have right now, whereas in people have just kind of, you know, short themselves up. So, Sam, I'd like to talk to you a little bit off the air after this broadcast is over. We're now down to the last minute. Thank you very much for tuning in to V Radio. And I really appreciate uh, all of you for tuning in. And please, as I said, share this podcast. Um, I'm going to play a clip. This is a voice recording of a girl reading some information, critical information on how to deal with the COVID virus. In. Hi guys, um, just wanted to pass on this information. It was sent to me by a colleague who uh, has a friend that works at Dr. Negrin, which is uh, the main hospital on our island. Um, it's obviously in Spanish, so I'm just going to read it and translate it for you. Um, this is what it says. 
The Chinese now understand the behavior of the COVID-19 virus thanks to autopsies that they have carried out. This virus is characterized by obstructing respiratory pathways with thick mucus that solidifies and blocks the airways and lungs. So they have discovered that in order to be able to apply a medicine, you have to open and unblock these airways so that the treatment can be used to take effect. However, all of this takes a number of days. Their recommendations for what you can do to safeguard yourself are, number one, drink lots of hot liquids, coffee, soups, teas, warm water. In addition, take a sip of warm water every 20 minutes because this keeps your mouth moist and washes any, viral, any of the virus that's entered your mouth into your stomach where the gastric juices will neutralize it before it can get to the lungs. Number two, gargle with an antiseptic in warm water like vinegar or salt or lemon every day if possible. Number three, the virus attaches itself to hair and clothes. Any detergent or soap kills it, but you must take a bath or a shower when you get in from the street. Avoid sitting down anywhere and go straight to the bathroom or shower. If you cannot wash your clothes daily, hang them in direct sunlight, which also neutralizes the virus. Number four, wash metallic surfaces very carefully because the virus can remain viable on these for up to nine days. Take note and be vigilant about touching handrails and door handles, etc. I guess within your own house as well, you can um, make sure that you are keeping those clean and wiping them down regularly. Number five, don't smoke. Number six, wash your hands every 20 minutes using any soap that foams. Do this for 20 seconds and wash your hands thoroughly. Um, number seven, eat fruits and vegetables. Try to elevate your zinc levels, not just your vitamin C levels. Number eight, animals do not spread the virus to people. This is person-to-person -person transmission. Number nine, try to avoid getting the common flu, I guess because this just already weakens your system, and try to avoid eating and drinking cold things. And number 10, if you feel any discomfort in your throat or a sore throat coming on, attack it immediately using the above methods. The virus enters the system this way and remains for three or four days within the throat before it passes into the lungs. Good luck to everyone. Take care of yourself and pass this information along if you wish, he says.